I thank God for all who have led us in worship today, for all of you who are worshiping with us online and all of you who are worshiping with us here in person. We continue a sermon series on Jesus's parables called Head Scratchers. And today we look at one of the most famous parables of all, one that's commonly referenced in popular culture, one that is widely familiar to church folks of various denominations and backgrounds. It's commonly called the parable of the Good Samaritan. So I will read Luke 10, 25 through 37 from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of my sermon is Invitation to the Ditch. Just then a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? What do you read there? He answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, while traveling, came near him, and when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him, and when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. What we make of this multivalent biblical passage depends largely upon which character we identify with. If we identify with the priest and Levite, the meaning will be different than if we identify with the Samaritan. And if we identify with the Samaritan, the meaning will be different than if we identify with the man lying injured in the roadside ditch. 
20 years ago when I was a youth minister, I gave a lesson on this parable one Wednesday night to our youth group. I identified with the priest and the Levite that passed by the injured man without offering him a bit of help since they were religious officials coming down from Jerusalem, I suggested that they had finished performing their sacred duties at the holy temple and had left their spirituality there instead of taking it with them. And this is why they failed to love the stranger on the road. My point was that we are often like the priest and the Levite in that we act like God's people at church, but not so much in everyday life. This is regrettable, I said, because Christ calls us to follow him in every dimension of our existence. I then displayed a visual aid, one of those pie charts that features the five major dimensions of life, physical, mental, emotional, social, and spiritual. And I drew a big red X through that whole pie chart to indicate that spirituality is not one slice of life, it's our whole life. I still very much believe that. <laughs> Yet now I understand other important options for interpreting the parable. The most common interpretation involves identifying with the Samaritan. He's the paragon in the story after all. And Jesus says at the end, go and do likewise. Bible scholar Arland Holtgren takes this interpretative approach, calling the story a parable of exemplary behavior. He writes, the question for a disciple of Jesus is not, who is my neighbor? But rather, am I neighbor to the person in need? This angle yields vital insights for Christian ethics and Christian living. We are to love anyone in need, anyone in our path, as the Samaritan did. We are to love compassionately too, because the Greek term translated pity suggests that the Samaritan felt compassion for the stranger deep in his gut. We are also to love people extravagantly, for the Samaritan dressed the man's wounds, put him on his own animal, transported him to an inn, paid the fee, took care of him, then told the innkeeper to keep taking care of him as long as he needs, and the Samaritan would return later to cover the rest of the bill. Don't assume, by the way, that the Samaritan was out for a joyride with nothing on his schedule. He interrupted his trip and adjusted his plans to care for this man. He put his family or his work or his errands or his vacation on the back burner in order to lavish abundant care on a complete stranger. While there is insight to be gained by identifying with the Samaritan. This interpretation has been critiqued 
on the grounds that it overlooks the shock value the parable would have carried in its original historical context. This is why Bible scholar Amy Jill Levine suggests that we identify with the first century Jewish listeners instead. In this approach, we don't identify with a character in the parable, but rather we identify with the crowd that listened as Jesus told the parable. Now, it's important to understand that there was a great deal of tension between Jews and Samaritans in New Testament times. They regarded each other as bitter enemies. It's also important to know that Jews were commonly classified as priests, Levites, and Israelites. A threefold distinction that appears in passages including Ezra 10.5 and Nehemiah 11.3. Levine writes, mention a priest and a Levite and anyone who knows anything about Judaism will know that the third person is an Israelite. <laughs> All this means that when the original listeners heard about the priest and the Levite failing to care for the injured stranger in the roadside ditch, they would have been gladly expecting to hear about the Israelite like them who was coming down the road next to be the star of the story and save the day. <laughs> but Jesus flipped the script. He yanked the rug out from underneath them. He presented a Samaritan hero. The listeners would have been scandalized. Since Samaritans were their enemies, the story would have conveyed that enemies are our neighbors. This is why Bible scholar Brad Young ties the parable to Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, 43, where he says, love your enemies. For a first century Jewish person listening to the parable, if a Samaritan is my neighbor, then an enemy is my neighbor. And if I am to love my neighbor, then I am to love my enemy. To apply this meaning today, simply think of a group of people you oppose. Then imagine one of them saving your life. Acknowledge that they are your neighbors. And listen, as Jesus tells you to love them with extravagant compassion. Identifying with the first century Jewish listeners, the original hearers of the parable clearly reveals weighty implications for Christian ethics and Christian living. And still, I want to propose that we consider identifying with the lawyer. Of all the characters we could identify with, the lawyer is a logical choice. He's the reason Jesus told the parable. He's the one to whom the parable was addressed. He tried to test Jesus by asking 
What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, what's written in the law? The lawyer said, love God and love your neighbor. Jesus said, right on, do this and you will live. But in verse 29, the lawyer wanted to justify himself. Isn't that just like a highfalutin professional? Isn't that just like a man with a supersized ego? He wants to sound smart and look altogether righteous right there in front of everybody. So he poses a question in hopes of limiting the scope of this neighbor love project. Who is my neighbor, he asks. Who is my neighbor? The lawyer exemplifies the sin of pride, a sin we all struggle with to one degree or another. The lawyer is so self-exalted and so self-assured that he does not understand neighbor love. So Jesus tells the parable to take him down a few notches. He starts by taking him down the road from Jerusalem, which was 2,500 feet above sea level, to Jericho, which was 800 feet below sea level. That's about a 3,300 foot drop in elevation at the beginning of the parable. But Jesus takes him even lower at the end when he asks the lawyer, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? This is the key moment in the entire episode. The lawyer had asked, who is my neighbor, but Jesus asked him who was a neighbor to the man in the roadside ditch. In switching the question, Jesus proposes an epistemological revolution in the field of neighbor love studies. We don't know neighbor love when we ask who all counts as our neighbor. We know neighbor love when we imagine ourselves beaten and stripped and robbed, lying by the roadside, almost dead in desperate need of hell. Jesus' question places the lawyer in the roadside ditch. It locates the lawyer in a position of brokenness. Jesus is teaching a critical lesson here. Namely, embracing our own brokenness is a prerequisite to neighbor love. Recognizing that we desperately need other people is a prerequisite to neighbor love. Recognizing that we need help sometimes is a prerequisite to neighbor love. Humility is a prerequisite to neighbor love. The lawyer was never going to get it with his lofty attitude, so Jesus invited him into the ditch to see things from there. In doing so, he invited us into the ditch 
as well. The parable is an invitation to embrace brokenness as the classroom in which true neighbor love is learned. This world fractures us all. No one is perfectly whole. Yet we're often like the lawyer thinking we're really something. But he's really the man in the ditch. Broken and needy according to Jesus. And so are we. The Greek word for the man's wounds in verse 34 is traumata, which is related to our English word trauma. Imagine yourself in trauma then, and you can know neighbor love. I've seen evidence of this when visiting trauma units in hospitals. The different families that have loved ones in the same trauma unit are often exceedingly kind to one another. Strangers can become like family when they've all been affected by trauma. It's almost as if their brokenness causes cracks that permit a deeper compassion to come bursting through. Indeed, this is what is exemplified in Jesus' own death. It's worth noting that Jesus told the parable of the Good Samaritan on his way to Jerusalem where he would suffer and die. On the cross, Jesus embraced brokenness. On the cross, Jesus embraced weakness. On the cross, Jesus embraced humility. On the cross, Jesus embraced a fractured form of existence in order to love his neighbors in an unparalleled fashion. Despite Christ's sterling example, it can be difficult for us to embrace our own brokenness. Those of us who've achieved some level of worldly success would rather hide our brokenness or deny it. We don't want to be seen as weak or needy or unable to take care of things ourselves. We might as well be trying to justify ourselves. Better to embrace our brokenness, acknowledge our need for help, and accept Jesus' invitation to the ditch. And back in 2012, a few weeks after I graduated from Vanderbilt, my wife Dana and I took a group of middle school students to a Christian camp in Ohio. We had our daughters Maggie and Nora with us. At the time, they were ages five and two. And it was exhausting to care for them while supervising a group of teenagers all week at camp, especially since a stomach virus was going around. We had a difficult week and we were eager to get home when Friday morning came. Dana started feeling sick on her stomach as we loaded the van and prepared to head home. 
This was particularly alarming to me because she had been having periodic episodes over the previous weeks where she would become very sick on her stomach for several days at a time. She would turn extremely pale. I mean, ghostly white. And we did not know what was wrong. We had been to doctors. On two occasions, she had become so weak that she passed out and I had to rush her to the hospital for intravenous fluids. Both times, she was so lifeless that I literally thought she might die. We found out after the camp that Dana has celiac disease, an autoimmune disorder in which any trace of gluten or wheat that she ingests basically poisons her body. She has been avoiding gluten carefully for the past 10 years and thankfully has been doing much better. But when she got sick leaving that camp, I just knew she was going to have another terrible episode that would require an emergency room to save her life. I was really worried because I was responsible for getting the teenagers home safely, but I had to take care of my spouse. We loaded up the van and began the 10-hour drive, 10 hours from Ohio back to North Carolina. Before we reached the first rest stop, four of the teenagers got sick on their stomachs. They had come down with that stomach bug. Dana was sick on her stomach too. I had to stop several times to find a restroom. I remember carefully looking for hospital signs at every exit we passed on the interstate just in case Dana were to pass out and I would need to rush her to an ER. She was getting quite pale when we stopped for lunch and I was so distressed that I remember holding back tears as I ordered chicken nuggets for my daughters. I called my parents down in South Carolina to ask if they could possibly leave where they were and come and meet us in Virginia because I did not think that Dana could make it all the way home. Maggie and Nora were worried about their mom and I was trying to hold it together so that they and the teenagers wouldn't get too scared. But one of the guys in the youth group on the back row of the van kind of discerned it was an emergency situation so he called his parents back in North Carolina and then they called me and asked what was going on. So I told them that Dana was very sick. Uh, four of our teenagers were sick on their stomachs with a stomach bug and I was trying to get people home down the interstate and at that moment they insisted on leaving their home in North Carolina and driving to meet us and help us home in any way they could. As I continued driving down the interstate I distinctly remember thinking to myself, what has become of my life? What has become of me? I am 34 years old and I have to call my mom and dad to come help me take care of my daughters and these teenagers. I have to call my parents to come help me do my job for work. I am the senior pastor of a church and I've got church members coming miles and miles to come help me get their teenagers home safely. Keep in mind that just weeks earlier, I had been on the prestigious campus of Vanderbilt University basking in the sunshine on the manicured lawns as the chancellor asked us, 
PhD graduates to stand a second time and be recognized during the graduation ceremony because we represent the highest level of achievement. And now I needed help from multiple people just to make it down the road. Mom and dad met us somewhere on I-95, I don't remember where, and they got a hotel room for Dana because she was so sick that she could not make it home. Mom stayed with Dana to take care of her, and dad rode in the church van to help me with Maggie and Nora, helped the teenagers, the parents of the teenager, met us at the North Carolina border and followed us all the rest of the way back to the church. So if for some odd reason, you ever start to think that I have it all together and I've got everything figured out, trust me when I say, I don't. And if you ever think, that you've got it all together and you've got it all figured out. Trust me when I say you don't. You and I are broken. You and I are needy. But if we embrace our brokenness in Christ, powerful form of neighbor love can come bursting through the cracks of our fractured existence. We finally got back to the church that Friday night and all the teenagers made it home safe and sound. I walked into our house and I called my mom and she said Dana was going to be fine and that they were going to drive home the next morning. And I set the phone on the kitchen table and I collapsed on the floor and I wept. I felt like I'd been beaten down. I felt like I was broken. I felt like I'd been in desperate need of help on the road. And it was in that moment, I think, that I began to understand the parable of the Good Samaritan. Amen.